what I want to talk to you uh, about in my brief time is uh, the Scholarly Communication Institute. And I'll echo um, some comment, a comment that was made by uh, Peter Brantley, the executive director of the Digital Library Federation, uh, yesterday in um, his opening remarks. And that is for SCI, for the Scholarly Communication Institute, video is uh, somewhat a, a new development. And we're thinking with the communities that we're working with how we're really going to integrate that, where it makes uh, sense to integrate it. And in some respects, what I'm talking to you about is a social process with scholars uh, that we've been going through. The Scholarly Communication Institute is a six-year project and we're currently in our fifth year, and it's been generally, generously funded by the Andrew Mellon Foundation. It's housed at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, uh, even though I divide my time between San Francisco and Cape Cod. Uh, and I will, uh, I guess, explain uh, a little later on uh, what I mean by housed at the University of Virginia. One of the uh, motivating factors of Mellon wanting to fund this institute was the desire of those of us who had been working with individual projects over the years, innovative projects uh, in digital scholarship, to move uh, the scholarly communities beyond individual projects and to move them really to a cultural change. And both we and uh, Mellon were interested in doing that. To uh, just give you some background um, on myself so you understand the uh, perspective I'm coming from, I spent most of my career as a university librarian at places like UC San Francisco, uh, Dartmouth College, uh, Johns Hopkins uh, Medical Institution, uh, and I was the founding university librarian for the California Digital Library and the founding of uh, University of California's e-scholarship uh, program. Before that, I had worked on uh, what were considered very forward-looking uh, electronic projects like the Red Sage Project, which was one of the first uh, large journal uh, projects, electronic journal product projects that brought together uh, 20 medical and scientific publishers and created a very large database and critical mass of content uh, for people to move forward and, and was really kind of proof of concept uh, back in the 90s of uh, would electronic journals uh, really work and were faculty and students really interested in them. And I know for many of you here that seems like something that that's just a given and fortunately it is for people. Prior to that, I spent much of my time uh, in the medical arena and with the Human Genome Project in developing um, databases and resources and social spaces uh, for human genetics researchers and molecular biologists. And I did this all from the platform uh, of the library because my strong feeling is that the library needs to be at the center of all scholarship. Uh, and even though there are parts of me that become dismayed when I see what happens in the real world, uh, that very much drives me uh, as well. The Scholarly Communication Institute uh, 
I think it's useful, uh, you know, to define, first of all, what we're really about. We're really about scholarly communication. And what that means to us, anyway, is a cyclical process uh, that takes uh, researchers, uh, faculty members, scholars through the research and discovery process, analysis, presentation, preservation, dissemination, access and use, and all the way again in a cyclical fashion back to research and discovery. And this is a process that's been in existence uh, in some form or another for many, many years. And the digital revolution has had a real <coughs> significant impact on various parts of this process at different times, depending upon what technology you're talking about. In the Scholarly Communication Institute, we deal primarily uh, with humanities scholars. And the reason of that, uh, one reason for that, of course, is Mellon's interest in the arts and humanities. And one of the most difficult things that we have to deal with with humanities scholars is the notion of scholarship as a collaborative process and not as an individual enterprise. When I worked with the scientific community, there was not much need uh, to uh, put emphasis and focus on that, uh, but there is indeed in the humanities, and it takes our working with groups of scholars for long periods of time uh, before many of them are really able to make that change, at least in certain institute, institute uh, situations. The overall goal of the Institute is to create an opportunity for scholars to understand and embrace digital scholarship. We just don't want to have them sit around a room and talk about digital scholarship, talk about why they can't do digital scholarship, or what they can't do, or what, la or what latest technology has caused them problems. But we actually want to take them from where they are to doing things. We assist the scholars by bringing together with the scholars uh, leadership from scholarly societies, research libraries, advanced technologies, experts in the critical arenas such as copyright, higher education leadership that often holds the resource uh, key, uh, and private industry. Uh, more and more we're trying to bring private industry into this process. To uh, what we refer to as an institute, and over the six years there are six institutes, there is a summer meeting, and that meeting is always held at the University of Virginia, and that's in some respects why we say this is housed at the University of Virginia. We invite a very small group, uh, hopefully no more than 25, and at least 60% of those to be working scholars, to a very conversational kind of meeting. We early on ply them with food and alcohol and find that they are very cooperative uh, during the entire rest of the time. What we hope to do with that is to create some communities of action that are then going to go out in a disciplinary way, not in an individual scholar kind of way on a particular project, to create some real advances in digital scholarship, whether you're talking about digital scholarship as you know, at the initial phase of research and discovery, or you're talking about it from a publication phase, etc. We also bring to the summer meeting uh, usually uh, three to six graduate students, and we find that the graduate students uh, have a tremendous impact on the senior scholars in uh, attempting to explain to them 
what they really need for their careers uh, to develop and how they would like to develop their careers and what the constraints are for them if they can't practice digital scholarship uh, in moving their ideas forward, creating new knowledge and new analysis. I'm going to single out a couple of uh, institutes that we did uh, so you can see how this progresses. If I go back to the second one, SCI2, it was on practical ethics. And practical ethics are things like uh, biomedical ethics, and other, uh, journalistic ethics, uh, environmental ethics, legal ethics, business ethics. Uh, in other words, applying uh, ethical standards uh, in various fields. We brought together a group of practical ethicists from all those kinds of areas in different institutions. And this was a group that essentially uh, had rarely used the technology except potentially to access some citation database. And we tried to immerse them uh, immediately in what all the possibilities might be. And the discussions for those two, two days were um, really quite significant. And they also had a significant effect on what those scholars did when they left the institute. The second thing that we try to do with them is create communities of action. And we created two communities of action, uh, a, a group from biomedical ethics and now a group from journalistic, journalistic ethics. And the real advance in digital scholarship that we're working on with them, three years later still, uh, is the creation of ethics share which is really uh, a community uh, space uh, and also a very large resource uh, of all kinds of digital information from citation-based to full text uh, to video uh, to newspaper uh, to Flickr images, uh, everything uh, really that's out there. And we're in the planning and prototype phase with them uh, at this stage. And what's been really critical is not to have an institute whereby we bring these people together and then let them go. But, you know, when, once they get home, we want to make sure that they're continually brought together from across those institutions and continue to work on some of these questions. Uh, I seem to be, let's see if I skipped one. The fourth institute last year was in architectural history, and there are probably some more immediate uh, applications with respect to video and architectural history. What we brought together was a group of architectural historians, and early on when we were planning the institute, we had hoped to bring together architectural historians and architects, uh, given the fact of everything that's happened with uh, architectural design, uh, the fact that most, uh, most plans and most as-builts these days are in digital form. But there's such a gulf, uh, a, a distance in how people think, how, how architectural historians think, uh, and uh, how, how architects, practicing architects, even in the academic uh, environment think, that we felt that we couldn't bridge that gap. Well, that was uh, kind of a noble thing to do, that we would concentrate on architectural history. Um, I, I've, I've uh, left the communities of action the wrong one here. The communities of action that we created were really around uh, a community of action with respect to publication 
and a community of action with respect to knowledge gathering. Uh, and the real advances that we're trying to make in digital scholarship with respect to architectural history is the Journal of the Society of Architectural Historians Online um, is uh, now being developed uh, in accordance with Artstore, uh, which I'm uh, sure you understand was also developed as a Mellon project. And this is not just an online journal. Uh, rather, uh, because the journal in its you know, current print form is already online. But this is now a journal that is seeking and working with submissions that come in very different technological forms because people in uh, architectural history and architecture and classics and other kinds of areas uh, you know, are really dealing a lot with computer modeling and design. And so it becomes a very different kind of resource for people to access and also a very different kind of resource for people to begin uh, to publish in, to get their work out in, that there was no place for them to get their work out in before. The other is in the creation of an architecture visual resource network. And the notion here is to capture the work of scholars uh, as they begin to capture information themselves. Architectural historians go everywhere with their cameras. Uh, they now go everywhere with their digital cameras. They also go everywhere with their camera phones now. Uh, and they also go everywhere with some kind of video device. And what ARVN uh, will be is a resource that allows people to input all of those resources to have some vetting process that then moves them from what the architectural historians are calling a pig pile, just that information that gets brought from everywhere else and vetted into a database that's available for access that's been sanctioned by the Society of Architectural Historians. And again, we're working with Artstore, uh, and we're also we're following two models, really. The Artstore model, which is a more traditional model, and the Flickr model. And we're able to compare uh, what kinds of things, uh, you know, the differences and the values of uh, tagging versus uh, very structured metadata, uh, things that are just out there and easily captured versus uh, image quality that needs to be, uh, images that need to be of such quality uh, to be able to publish, uh, et cetera, et cetera. SCI 5, which happens this summer, takes a slightly different tack. Rather than um, rather than take a discipline, we're taking uh, the notion of visual studies across disciplines. Uh, because our understanding and our belief is that the visual, whether it's in still form or moving form, is, is a really critical area for universities and academic institutions to deal with, both in uh, developing uh, an infrastructure to support them uh, and providing other kinds of support for faculty and students, etc. And so we're bringing scholars who work with media together, uh, visual media together. Some of the scholars come from video, some come uh, out of the video world, some come out of the film world, some come out of new media, new media art, some come from simulations, they're using 3D, they use standard photography. Uh, and, and we really want to focus them in on what, what's the critical 
aspect uh, of visual media for their work? What are the research agendas that need to be developed in order to really understand the infrastructures that need to, put, need to be put into place? And one of the things that we've been able to do uh, in this institute that we weren't with architectural historians is to bring together both theorists and practitioners. And in fact, out of the 25 people that we have coming to the institute, we did not invite anybody who was either a theorist or a practitioner, but people who were both theorists and practitioners because uh, we feel that that integration of the two uh, is absolutely critical to moving forward. And what we hope to develop this summer is now a community of action, which is our visual scholarship community of action. And until we have that summer institute meeting, we really don't know uh, what the communities of action are, are, are going to exactly look like and what kind of real advances we think we can make with that community of action. Uh, one of the ones that's clearly on our mind right now is the development of a research agenda because uh, we think that that's really key. NSF is very interested in that. Uh, in addition to Mellon, uh, uh, NEH is very interested. Uh, as you may know, they have a major new program that they're announcing on uh, centers for uh, digital humanities and they don't have much money yet because they don't know what it is they want to do and we really want to influence them, have the scholars influence them and give these scholars who are at that meeting this summer a community to go back and do that with. The last institute uh, is going to be held in uh, the summer of 2008 and it really focuses on the notion of centers of excellence. I imagine that most of you are familiar with the cyber infrastructure report that came out of the American Council of Learning Societies on the notion of cyber infrastructure in the social sciences and humanities. And that was really developed on a model from one that had come previously from NSF on cyber infrastructure in the sciences. And some of the recommendations that are in there have to do with the creation of centers of excellence, but it doesn't specify what the centers of excellence are, what they would do, where they would be. And what we're in the process of doing right now is working closely with ACLS, the Council on Library and Information Resources, um, Mellon, NEH, NSF, uh, people who uh, work now with the Centers for Digital Humanities, and coming up with a number of models for what those centers might be. And some of those models, frankly, may center around specific technologies so that we need to have a center of excellence uh, that focuses on video or that uh, focuses on textual information, etc. We'll move forward with those models and create communities of action that will then have a set of strategies to make sure funding gets put in place by both federal and private agencies and that implementation begins to move forward. SCI is not only about discussion, it's really uh, about making something happen and making something happen in the broad community and trying to leverage what has been done in individual projects at many of the institutions uh, previous to this. Thank you.
Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Patricia Renfro. I'm the Deputy University Librarian here at Columbia. And it's a real pleasure to have an opportunity to think about and talk about video in the context of one research library, but I think issues that are common to many of us. First of all, uh, I, I think it's, it's important to recognize that when we build collections today, we're building them in um, some very different ways. Uh, we, we continue to license and purchase and acquire materials by gift, but we're also creating and publishing materials. We're organizing in some new ways to do that. Here at Columbia, we've brought into our larger information services organization the traditional university library component, a digital library group, the Center for New Media Teaching and Learning that you've been working with for the last two days. We're creating a new center for digital research and scholarship that will include an electronic publishing arm and a, a copyright office. So what we're beginning to see is that the interactions between all of these different groups uh, really enrich what we're trying to do. I want to talk about a few examples of the sorts of publications that we're beginning to manage and look at. One of them is um, a fascinating collaboration, a Sino-Tibetan oral history project that's being developed by a group of documentary filmmakers working in consultation with Columbia's East Asian Institute, consulting with the library's oral history research office to, uh, to put together a series of interviews that will be background for the documentary film with uh, people who were involved in the takeover of Tibet. And the uh, end product of those interviews, the actual tapes, will be deposited in our East Asian Institute so that we've got an external group producing research that becomes available permanently to scholars. Frontiers of Science is a, a, a website that's being developed for educators. It's being funded by the Howard Hughes Institute and it's taking a, a, a very successful new course at Columbia that's a core curriculum course, a required course for all undergraduates, that's aimed at graduating students who will be scientifically literate. Columbia's had a long <coughs> history of focusing its undergraduates on the humanities, and some of our science faculty finally said, well, wait a minute, there's a lot more that students should know when they leave the university. And because this, uh, this course has been so successful, Howard Hughes became interested in being able to make this available to science educators throughout the world. So uh, we've been videotaping faculty who've been giving these courses, um, chosen the ones that our undergraduates found most stimulating and interesting. We'll be developing um, course materials around that and also a, a social environment for commentary on teaching and learning. Jazz Studies Online, a third of these um, new types of publications, follows a, a pattern that we developed for Columbia International Affairs Online, a, a political science uh, publication that we've been producing for a while. And this is a collaboration between Columbia's Center for Jazz Studies, between our electronic publishing group, and the Center for New Media Teaching and Learning. It's going to include interviews with jazz musicians and academics, It'll include interactive web-based teaching and learning tools such as a sonic glossary for jazz so that students will be able to uh, look up a word and hear and see what it means and uh, working papers and digital library resources. This, this product won't be open content. It will be um, licensed at a very modest rate 
because it'll have an ongoing editorial content <coughs> component. And so we really need a sustainability plan for this. Um, and then a site that's been uh, released for a while, an institutional history, uh, an oral history of the Carnegie Corporation. We've been working with Carnegie uh, for a number of years to um, document their philanthropic work and produced uh, hundreds of hours of tapes and uh, transcripts of, of interviews. In, in the last two or three years, they uh, funded us to look at what video does in terms of, of getting this history. And there's some very interesting uh, pieces on this website about the difference between an oral history interview taken as a, as a simple audio and done as video. And as you might expect, people are more inclined to perform in front of a camera, and so you get a very different sort of, of uh, interview. Both of them very valuable, and we're looking with interest at that. And then we heard yesterday from um, our colleagues in the center about the Havel at Columbia site that accompanied Vaclav Havel's visit to, uh, to Columbia. And last but not least, um, the legacy acquired collections, the analog materials that are in all our research libraries that are deteriorating at various rates. I picked one particular collection, but we have hundreds of these in the libraries. Um, this is a collection that we inherited when we uh, took over the theological library from Union Theological Seminary. Fascinating collections of speeches and sermons and lectures by uh, people like Daniel Berrigan and William Sloan Coffin. And the um, cost of, cost of re-recording these is significant. We're fortunate to have a Lilly grant that is allowing us to do this, uh, but many of our collections are still waiting for this sort of attention. So what are we doing about the challenges, the challenge of disseminating, of storing, access, and archiving, and of preserving analog collections? And disseminating is actually one of the more difficult of these, and I think... Mark referred to this yesterday. Maybe it's true that uh, when people were presented with rows and rows of volumes, there was more of a sense that here was something they wanted to look at. I think one of our concerns with digital information is that it's, it can be sort of hidden from students. So uh, the building of learning and teaching environments gives us really interesting opportunities to reveal content in important and valuable ways. And the Digital Bridges Initiative that Center for New Media is developing under Mark Phillipson's leadership is looking really hard at where these connections can be made. I think uh, Peter Brantley talked yesterday about how valuable the librarians in research libraries are, the amount of knowledge that is in those people. And so beginning to connect that into the development of learning environments is, is really exciting. Mark also talked about the um, value of being able to break apart a multimedia publication and store and retrieve and reuse segments of that. So we're beginning to work at Columbia with our digital library group to develop a, a life cycle approach to managing, accessing, and preserving multimedia content. And we'll be um, developing a process to test a multimedia digital asset management system and develop a methodology to ingest this material into a long-term digital archive. And then the issue of preserving these analog collections. We've um, discovered that one of the biggest uh, 
issues here is knowing what you've got because so much of this material has come into our collections with other materials. So we've been working um, for two years now in the second year of a Mellon-funded study to develop a survey that can be used by any institution that, that needs to look at uh, what it's got in terms of audio and video. The uh, survey tool is complete and we'll be putting it up on the web with, a, with an accompanying glossary. And uh, we're currently uh, testing it in our own environment. We estimate we have about 35,000 to 40,000 of these uh, objects, analog objects, about half of which were developed through our oral history office. But the other half came into collections with, uh, with archival personal collections, with institutional collections and so on and they're in varying stages of decay. Um, the um, NYU also has a Mellon-funded project to, uh, to look at how uh, visual inspection and actual uh, listening of materials compare in terms of predicting uh, the disintegration of materials. Lastly, I wanted to just uh, suggest uh, some of the areas that we would like to see, and we are seeing some, development on a national level. After hearing Murray Weston's presentation yesterday about the British University's Film Video Council, I, I felt that I really wanted to rewrite this slide and just put that at the top and um, say we need one of these too in the US. I was really stunned by the material that's available to students in the UK. But to, to list some of these which I think are important, um, the development of widely accepted standards and best practices for preservation, quality, conservation, conversion to digital formats. We need uh, more of the service providers <coughs> that can meet preservation standards, and we need uh, more technical experts who are familiar with older formats of, of material. We're encouraged by the movement toward uh, more, more wide development and acceptance of metadata standards. And we need more efficient ways of generating technical, structural, and administrative metadata, often the most costly uh, part of any of these processes. We look forward to more shared long-term digital archives focused on audio and video content. And we need copyright and IP laws that support long-term preservation and archiving. And I know that's something that's come up uh, frequently during the course of the two days. So thank you very much. My name is Richard Collenberg. I'm the editor of the uh, website tvsmarts.com, and uh, I believe that Peter mentioned that I was the founding archivist of the American Film Institute. That was a long time ago. Since then, I've been involved in journalism and the media, and discovered in the course of that uh, a, a wealth of resources that allow me to contribute to the effort that all of you are working in, which is to foster a cult of a, a, a culture, maybe a cult, of use 
of this material that we've been discussing. I think the emphasis today and yesterday has been on uh, post-secondary. My hope and my activities has been to engage the secondary school uh, arena in this process of using these audiovisual materials and specifically that the students would use it. I think we've said enough and perhaps not enough about the problem of the generations. I find that working with students moves the culture of use farther and faster than working with the teachers. Um, the TV Smarts website is one of several that uses the following material to generate a media menu each week. We go through the standards of various states. I have here the one, uh, just one page that shows the physical layout of the standards that uh, the state of California, uh, and then the, uh, I have some examples. What we're doing here is developing a way of, by hand rather than by technology, going into the, uh, no, that's the, we want to go back going into the words used to describe the standards just arbitrarily. I'll, I'll use a, since we're in New York, I'll go to a New York one. These words, sorted by hand, also appear in the descriptors of television broadcasts that are put online each week by the commercial networks and cable casters. There are about 200 of them. And what I've been doing by hand is seeing where there's a match between the words and the, and the descriptors. And when there is a match, we put that in a, we, we vet these things. Let's see. Oh, it's word. Here's an example of one of the... Uh, It's too small to read, but it's about uh, the forces of nature, and it's about geology. <coughs> These words met, turned out to be available in the 8th grade and the 12th grade and even the 4th grade learning standards as posted on the web, and they match up with these things that we found on the website of this particular broadcaster. I'll have, I have another example here. We're talking about programs that were made by the commercial broadcasters for broadcast to the general audience. We have PBS in there because they also broadcast to the general audience, but the point I'm making is that we're not talking about KidVid here. We're talking about programs that were made for the general audience and we're making available an informational site that tells the students or the teachers or the parents in advance when a program is going to be on TV that's related to the, what they might be studying in school. Uh, here's an example of the uh, particular, uh, at least one version of the site. Let's see if I can scroll down here. TV Smarts is a site that is um, imported into the websites of various schools and educational websites around the country. Um, 
it's um, you can see that we sort by elementary, middle, and high school appropriateness of the, whether it was in the standards. Here's a description in the middle of the uh, the topic and the source, which is the channel and the broadcast. Down at the bottom, let me see if I can get this. We have a little information box which lists a, a, the website which frequently accompanies a broadcast. Very recently, this website has also been the source of information on how to log on to the streaming video uh, of the very show. Uh, Patricia gave me a phrase that I, I, I cherish as to what all of this amounts to, and this is the new bookshelf in the library. This is the time that somebody finds out that this material is available, and because of the onrush of culture, I mean, uh, of uh, technology, turns out that a lot of these things become streaming. So this is the opening weekend of this, this material. Now, what's going on with it? Well, the short answer is that when students are, are told by a teacher to watch these shows at home, they do, and that enlivens the school discussion. That's the good news. When students write essays based on this material, they write longer essays than they would if they had been sent to the library to write a book, so the teachers are burdened with additional text to have to wade through. In a demonstration site in Los Angeles at a place with the rather dramatic title of Hollywood High School, which is simply the name of the district of town where the school is, it's not really connected to the movie business. One teacher has an interesting policy of no paper. She assigns the students to do their research for papers, I mean for assignments and essays online, and she said, you either email me the result or hand me a disk. And so she has to wade through all of the outcome on her computer. But the point is, the students are exposed to material which is broader than what's going on in the other classrooms in this very school. And this results in a tentpole effect where they score higher on the standardized tests. And in that particular high school, that classroom alone was able to produce results which moved the average results for the school up to a point where they were able to sustain their uh, accreditation. <coughs> the students liked this. Uh, one, after one particular test, the teacher told me that the kids came in and sort of grabbed her by the shoulder and said, we knew what was on the test. The point is that they had seen things on television that accumulate over the period of the year that might not be that week's material, but the point is they knew it when they were going into the test and were able to draw on this. I learned that that is a phenomenon from my son, who is a, actually a biologist, although he's about to graduate as an architect. <laughs> but he learned all kinds of things by watching television. And one day he did something while he was in an undergraduate situation. He was bored, and so he took the LSAT uh, because his college roommate was doing it. And he scored well enough to get into UCLA, but he's neither an attorney nor wanting to be an attorney. He's a biologist and an architect. But I asked him, where'd you get the information? The answer is from the kind of stuff that you, sir, are putting up on, on the web. I, I think that what the British University Film and Television Council is doing is something that I simply 
want to have a role in bringing to the United States. Um, by the way, I want to make a parenthetical reference here to two things, one Google and the other VChip, and then I'll shut up. Google, when you go on, say for instance, last week they were running a, a History Channel series on the Inquisition, a very lengthy and pretty detailed account of that phenomenon. And if you Googled the Inquisition, there was no reference to that particular program being available. We don't have a, an info box where a student can go on and simply arbitrarily, I mean not arbitrarily, but according to their need, <coughs> type in the topic that a, an essay has been assigned by the teacher or that they're just generally interested in, in and then find what's going to be on TV in the upcoming fortnight. It, it just doesn't exist. The site that we have uh, called TV Smarts was started by myself and uh, a Canadian engineer whose contribution to Western civilization was the V-chip, which is in, built into the American and Canadian television shows, the sets by mandate. It now is used to sort three things, which I call swearing, slashing, and, well, anyway, sex and violence and bad language. But there are 23 other letters in the alphabet that it could sort for. It's not widely known that the V-chip can be used to select for a program or against a program. And when he goes down to talk to the FCC, even they say, well, what is there that you would like to select for? And he uses the column each week to answer the question of what's potentially valuable on TV that the students might profit from or a parent might want their kids to see. Um, the uh, other use that's being made of this is libraries, oddly enough, not so much teachers, but libraries print out this column and put it by the cash register because they have a knowledge of that if something's on TV, it drives circulation. And they literally are able to take a book that maybe nobody has read for years. I'll just arbitrarily say that uh, we'll talk about uh, Grapes of Wrath. If there's a broadcast on the Turner Channel of the John Ford movie and we have a little notice that it's coming, librarians like to know about this in advance so they can go into the storeroom and pull all the old copies of Grapes of Wrath because there will be a demand for that book because it's been on television, word gets out. Um, I hope that some people in the group here will uh, feel, as I do about the British, uh, will feel about th this, this idea of posting information where students can look through the, the standards or somehow vetted information about upcoming broadcasts and, and bring it to um, a, a school near you. We're doing that in a strange way in Los Angeles by having students learn how to do this sorting by themselves and making up their own personal media menus. Uh, the, um, there's a list, if anybody's interested, I, I just email me at tvsmarts.com and there's a place about us with an email address. But the students are equipped with 
this list, come on. Okay. This is from the cable industry, but these are the, uh, there are about 50 of these live sites where the students can go sorting through. And um, depending on the subject that they're studying, they can find appropriate programming. And um, there is, um, in addition, by the way, to the posting on the TV Smarts and the, the uh, Hollywood High School thing, it goes on to a site called uh, whyville.net, which is actually for middle schoolers. I, I mentioned that at the end by virtue of my theory that the programs were made for adults to view, but they have a dramatic thrust to them that makes it accessible to kids as young as six. And uh, the point I'm trying to make is that there is no really inappropriate time for really fine video to be exposed to a kid whether it be a John Ford movie or a documentary from Nova, uh, they're sponges and they pick up this stuff and they can deploy it as they take tests through their career. It tattoos things in their mind that they draw on. And um, I recommend that anybody who wants to take up this idea and do it instead of me or with me or without me, uh, see if they can find some way of sorting through the listings that the broadcasters put up and the standards and merge them somehow for the specific purpose of your school or your department or even your own kids. Thank you very much. <laughs>